0: Hello, and welcome to the Professor Podcast with Ruth and Claire. Each episode, we talk about a particular topic in the life of a professor. We are tenure-track faculty members in the sciences, working at a primarily undergraduate university in California. The purpose of our podcast is reflection, so we bring something we think is working, and something we're working on, to discuss.
1: Welcome to the Professor Podcast with Ruth and Claire. I'm Ruth.
0: And I'm Claire. And today we have a special interview episode and I'm excited to share the concepts we heard about with you all.
1: Today we're going to talk with Ben Van Dusen and Jason Nissen, who I met at an AAPT meeting where they led an awesome workshop on statistics for people who want to do physics education research. So here we talk about their program called LASSO. So it stands for learning about STEM student outcomes and their mission to help educators assess their classes.
0: So there's some lingo that comes up in the podcast that we wanted to give you a heads up on. LA is Learning Assistant, which is an undergraduate teaching assistant specifically to help make larger classes more hands-on. And then there's also the FMCE, which is the Force and Motion Conceptual Evaluation, which is a standardized physics test. And finally, the AAPT is the American Association of Physics Teachers, which is Ruth's favorite conference that we (laughs) mentioned earlier. So we hope you enjoy hearing from Ben and Jason as much as we did.
1: Today, we're talking to Ben Van Dusen and Jason Nissen, and they're going to tell us all about um, the LASSO, which is the learning about STEM student outcomes. So thanks so much for being on the
0: podcast, guys. Welcome.
2: Yeah, thanks for
3: having us. Yeah, Great.
1: Okay, so to get started, would you tell us a bit about your background and how long you've been teaching, what kind of universities and student bodies have you
3: experienced with?
2: Jason, you want to take it first?
3: Yeah, I've taught at uh, Oregon State University, and then I was a graduate TA at the University of Maine, and I taught a couple of courses of instructor record. I primarily taught algebra or calculus-based introductory physics courses, and that's been over the last 10 or 11 years. Um, and almost all of my teaching, I've gotten, the, I've had the luck of having learning assistants in my courses to help me to implement some student-centered instruction, and that's Largely my teaching background, yeah. Perfect. Fantastic. And Ben,
1: are you yep. also a physics?
3: physics?
2: Uh, so physics is my disciplinary expertise, for sure, um, but a little bit different route than Jason. I was a high school physics teacher uh, for five years in at South Eugene High School in Oregon, and I did a little chemistry and a little math as well. Um, but uh, then I, that was before getting my PhD, and while getting my PhD, I had the opportunity to Prepare uh, future science teachers at Colorado Boulder, and get involved in the Learning Assistant Program. So that when I went to uh, Chico State in Northern California as a faculty member there, I started the LA program. And so, there I prepared future LA or prepared the LAs in the LA Pedagogy course, as well as teaching. My main teaching load was for future elementary teachers, so teaching them physical science, but mostly physics. Um, and now that I'm in a School of Education. I'm teaching methods, science teaching methods courses to uh, master students who are going to be yeah, science teachers next year, primarily. Awesome. And I've been doing that, right? So it's been university teaching for oh, around seven years. Um, yeah.
0: And how did you get into research on physics education in particular and, and the equity work you guys have been doing?
2: Yeah, I... Um, I didn't know that physics education research was a thing until I happened to be in Washington, D.C. at a National Academies event uh, where I heard um, Carl Weinman talk about research in physics education research. And that was a point in my time where I decided do I want to go back into my high school teaching job or what do I want to do next. And then I realized that's that's a thing. I get to do research and be an educator you know, and still be in physics. And so uh, I talked to him and said, okay, I'm going to get my Ph.D. in physics education research at CU Boulder. So. That was just like a pivotal like day that I can mark that that's wow. what happened.
1: That's yeah. my experience too, but I think I was a lot later because it was after my PhD and I was like, I didn't know this was a thing. So yeah, yeah. that's cool.
3: Yeah, and for, <clears throat> for me, um, I don't have like a clear moment. It was more, um, I was really interested in doing any sort of space science. And then uh, I kind of did that for my undergrad research. Wasn't that interested in doing it after that. Physics education research seemed really interesting. And so I got accepted into a program, and I went, tried it out, and here I still am. <laughs> uh, and that was for grad school but,
0: for you, Jason?
3: Yeah, cool. for grad school. Yeah, <clears throat> and my goal was always to look at issues of diversity, like whatever work I was doing—diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion. Awesome.
2: Yeah, that's the part I didn't uh, address. Yes, you, you know, when do we get into you know looking at issues of equity? And mine's been an evolution over time. There's not like one. Point, but you know, my, my dissertation work was at you know low income school and um, you know looking at technology in there and, and getting resources for them and it's kind of evolved part of working on Lasso. Then you know we're like, okay, we have this access to this large data set. What do we want to do? And you know, an obvious thing jumped out. It's like, okay, we can start looking at these outcomes for underrepresented students because we actually have enough data to do that. And that kind of led down the rabbit hole to really digging in. And um, you know, also getting to work at Chico State with, you know, diverse student populations and and getting to, yeah, uh, engage them and mentor them. And, you know, that definitely helped drive me, uh, drive my interest.
1: Yeah, it seems like this is sort of a side thing, but it's often really interesting to talk to men who end up in equity work because sometimes there's just sort of a if you're the female in the department they're like oh well you care about this right and you know I do but it's just like it's sort of assumed so it's kind of interesting I wonder is it more like you choose the thing or it's just sort of interesting to me to hear about how people arrive at that because it's not kind of just assumed that you're going to be motivated to do that
2: it's weird lacking the like clear, like, Oh, this is why I'm doing it. Like, I don't have a great story. No, like this right. is why I'm doing it. But I also know now at the point where I'm at now, I'm like, I can't imagine not doing it. I'm like, yeah. I have to like, that's just where my work needs to be. Um, and it's, it's like not an option to do otherwise. I'd say I can't do things. Some side projects aren't related, but the idea of not being engaged in that work just seems not optional to me. And I don't know how exactly I got to that place. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, uh, I have like a pretty
3: clear motivation and reason for why I was, I was enlisted in the Navy and I was on a submarine. There are no men or no women on submarines There are no women. I think that I might like, have what changed. What is this submarines
1: time. you're talking about? With <laughs> but yeah, sorry.
3: Um, so that was like, I was just like a very toxic environment. There's actually some really good writing about how like the sleep culture on submarines is like very toxic. Like like not sleeping is a masculine Mm, activity, right? Like, and and so when I went, right? Like when I went to undergrad, um, um, I saw like a lot of similar like expectations and cultures in like interesting college physics teaching, and there was I would say a particular person who reminded me of like the worst characteristics on the submarine and just like a very hostile sexist environment Mm -hmm. that he created around himself. And I noticed like that I even myself as a non traditional student, like I didn't have the skills or power to really address that explicitly and the faculty didn't address it, you know. And that person went on to get a at least a master's degree there. I don't know, I didn't follow them, but <clears throat> but I just saw a lot of the same culture uh, in the physics department and in the engineering courses and, yeah. that I that I saw on the submarine. How interesting. Um, and and I was involved in a bunch of other things in undergrad. I was in uh, men stopping rape, and I was a president of a fraternity, and uh, where we did a lot of I would say counter counter stereotypical activities for fraternities, um, just trying to like think about that culture of, of masculinity. And you know, I think when I left the Navy, I was also a carpenter and like. The internal dialogue that I had in my head about women was like not the internal dialogue that I wanted to have after Mm. being a part of those cultures and having to engage in like a conscious, reflective process to, I guess, transform my internal models, my mental model. Uh, And that whole process is what like really made me want to go do equity work.
0: That's really cool that you intentionally reframed how you think about things and made a new narrative your internal habit would Would you agree with that
3: yeah yeah I would say like I very consciously tried to identify when I would do things that I thought were problematic and then like just exercise them out I, I was similar now like being a parent right like with cussing like oh I must be <laughs> extra stressed because I'm cussing too much uh and you know I was a and then Navy and I was a carpenter, two populations well known for their (laughs) stereotypes that are well deserved.
1: Yeah, I got the Irish thing, the Irish cursing down as well, but I, um, I love that framing, though, that it's you know, I think so much of what makes everything fall apart now is this idea of people just being good or bad, like either you're just like a sexist dude or you're not. So I really love this framing of like just drawing your attention to something and kind of consciously changing it instead of You know what I mean? Like, I think the framing of good or bad or sexist or not sexist is not helpful. And the idea of a growth mindset about being equitable towards women, like that's really positive.
3: I think for for me, a lot of it is like seeing how the context and the culture that I'm embedded in is like critical to what happens, right? Like how I act, how my own mental processes are, And so, you know, choosing, consciously choosing to be in a place that supports me being the person that I want to be, right? Like that lets me live my ideals, Um, which is not every physics department for everyone. No,
1: no. I kind of want to have 50 podcast episodes, but I also wanted to circle back to how many people do you think... Like space is the siren song that brings you to physics. And then you quickly are like, actually, this isn't what I want to do. I feel like space is the big lure for people to come into physics. And then it's often doesn't develop. But whatever gets us in the door right at the beginning. Space is cool. Space is cool. True story. (laughs) Yes.
2: Yeah. It was was like engineering and Apple products are part of what got me there. I was like, I want to build cool stuff. And so physics was...
1: Now we're building Jason's a cool culture. I was a
2: big physics fan, or, uh, Apple fan, fanboy. I still have all my Apple products, but not quite like I used to be.
3: Yeah, just to clarify for everybody, he doesn't mean like Newton with the Apple falling <laughs> in his head. Right? <laughs> yeah, not Mac, yeah.
1: Um, okay, so tell us about Lasso. Am I saying it? Is that how we're saying it? L-A-S-S-O. And why did you develop this tool? You kind of started us off on that, but yeah.
2: So right. So uh, Lasso Lasso stands for the Learning About STEM Student Outcomes, um, but that was not its original acronym. Actually, oh. we had a different acronym for Lasso, which is a good part of its history. So it, it was originally um, Learning Assistant Supported Student Outcomes, and because it began as something to uh, from the Learning Assistant Alliance, and so. For those not familiar with learning assistants, they're undergrad, usually STEM majors or STEM students who are coming back to help transform uh, undergrad STEM course while they're still undergrad. So they took the course, now they're working with the faculty member to introduce more small group activities, less lecture. Um, you know, basically bring the student to instructor ratio down so they can do that. You know, great hands-on stuff. And so that all came out of CU Boulder. Shout out to Valerie Otero, my uh, advisor, my former advisor. Um, was one of the co-founders of the LA program. And so I got to work with LA's and I was actually doing a postdoc with Valerie um, and thinking about the LA program and we got an NSF grant. And part of it was to look at the impact of learning assistance kind of across the country. Because individual institutions, have said, well, what about my class? Or what about my class? And there's been some studies, but nobody had looked holistically, you know, kind of across all these different programs. And said, so, well, what a great opportunity to collect a bunch of data. And so I actually started off just as Qualtrics, a bunch of assessments that other researchers had developed. Um, we said, OK, we'll put this on Qualtrics. We'll ask all these, you know, LA using um, learning assistant, you know, using institutions, like, please come, come take these assessments. And we did that. And we quickly realized, one, Qualtrics is not the, you know, the, really the platform it is. It doesn't this. Can I ask a stupid People's...
1: question? What is Qualtrics? Yeah. Ah, that's a good question. Sorry, so Qualtrics,
2: Yeah, no, no, no. Qualtrics is a um, a company that does mm. assessment. They have an assessment platform that you can put your own assessments up and create them. And um, the problem is we quickly realized this takes a lot of work to, like, you're asking for maybe their names or student ID numbers on the front. Now you have to try and match their pre-test and their post-test. And there's all this processing. that is going before I can like get a report ready for the instructor who came and did this, like, I decided to give them the results back. It took a lot of time and energy Realized this is not a sustainable solution. We need to create our own system that automates this. And so that's when we brought a programmer on board. Um, Ian, her many horses being the, the primary one. He was a point person on this, but also shout out to Mike Oatley for his work on it as well. Um, so Ian was a computer science education, PhD, um, and he was still working on his PhD at the time, but, uh, so he developed this online system that, uh, you, you create an account through the learning Assistance Alliance website, which is free to instructors. And you answer a couple questions about your, your class, which tells us a little bit about the things you care about, the types of things you do in your course. And then you select your, um, your instrument that you want to use your assessment. There's a bunch of them on there. And uh, you can select multiple if you want. And you upload your class list. And basically click the Go button. And all those students get an email uh, with a unique link. It says, oh, your know, instructor is asking you to do this. Please try your best. You know, And they click that link. And now that link identifies who the student is. So you don't worry about them typing in John versus Jack on the post-test. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it knows who's done it. And the instructor can see which students have participated. Um, and they can click Send Email Reminder button wherever they want. Automate just the people who haven't completed the assessment yet. Um, And at the end of the semester, they basically click go on the post-test and it does it all over again, uh, scores them, matches them, so the instructor can download all that information, but it also generates a nice PDF for them with a report um, so they can kind of see where their students started the semester and end of the semester, all of which is free to instructors. And then once we had this platform, we said, well, why would we limit this to just LA using institutions? We want everybody, like it costs us nothing now Now that we've developed it. Let's get everybody to use it, um, hopefully to help them reflect on their teaching. Uh, Part of the original idea was like, oh, please come use this before you start your LA program. So you see like, what are students learning before? Mm -hmm. And now that I've done this transformation, I've implemented LAs, what are they learning after? But people are changing all sorts of cool stuff in their classes. And so we'd love for them to be able to track that and have some empirical evidence to look at how it's shifting student learning or attitudes. And um, so now, yeah, now it's used by, oh, whatever. I don't know how many institutions around the country, but, you know, 90 different institutions or something like that have used it. And, um, yeah, and part of the way, so that's one side of the house is what we do for instructors, which hopefully giving them evidence to to look at, you know, is my new stuff working? Um, But then on the other end, it's also students have the option to, Um, include their data, anonymize their data, and include it in a researcher database. So it's generating this big database of students' data and and course-level data, because instructors said, like, what do they care about and what are they doing? And then researchers can come and access this database um, to look at research questions they wouldn't be able to look at otherwise, or maybe on their own, They they don't have the time and money to collect this giant database, but here you can come and pay a little bit of money and all of a sudden have, you know, a big database to look at things like equity, which is the primary thing we've done with it.
1: Um, Can I tell you but... guys, like, my guilty confession about the forced concept inventory? Yeah, please. Which is a test that we yeah. often give in the first physics class we take, where, like, before the students start, it's like, what are, you know... Because I guess the whole point, right, is we want to measure, is it our brilliance that is making them know all this stuff at the end, or do they come <laughs> in knowing it? So we have a pre and a post... And so I've done it a few times, but then like I did it and then I had to find out whether there was a Scantron machine on campus and I had to go to the Scantron machine and do it. So I've only actually graded one of them ever and then i just have this massive pile of scantrons in my office that i've never yeah. addressed so obviously I'm Are you not, trying like,
2: to set me up here you're setting you're teeing it up for me right now. i you're know so made, i'm like, like this right is now. like
1: well because i the way the reason why i know jason and ben is i attended a really great workshop about stem equity and they showed these like just this beautiful process and these fancy graphs that pop out and that was not has not been my experience because also like I, it's just matching up, like you said, pre and post tests, and then I didn't have the demographics of the students necessarily on there, and it just it ended up not being an informative process. Yeah, it's just you, gathering I mean, dust a, a, in my office. A,
2: exactly the reason you know that we thought, you know what, if we want people to do this, we need to make it as easy as possible. So yes. when you do a paper and pencil, right, you take. 30 minutes maybe of your first class of the semester and 30 minutes of your last class, you just lost an hour of instruction. You now have all these scans around you need to grade, so you need the key, you need to know how to analyze it and, and maybe match data. And like we can automate all of that and save all that time and energy. So you don't have to do anything. I oh, than click the go button um, and then write generate reports. It's actually a good chance for Jason to talk about, you know, right, does collect some demographic data from students. And so there's some, some cool stuff it can do. Just I don't know if you want to talk about the equity report you've been working on.
3: Well, I was just going to go back to what Ruth was saying really quick, which is, you know, when I first got to grad school, like, there were a bunch of faculty who had these piles of FMCE results, you know, different inventories that had never been scanned. There were, like, just a huge stack of them in the research lab. And, like, that was one of the first things I did was, like, you go and you have to talk to the person who runs the Scantron and, like, kind of butter them up to make sure your Scantrons get done right, and then, <laughs> then what you send and ask them for help that they help you to understand what is going on with these files they're sending. And uh, <clears throat> so it was nice to, like, come into a post-acquisition and work on uh, making that process better <laughs> and easier. <clears throat> um, yeah, and so Lasso collects demographic data along the way. Students can choose to share that. And, you know, those surveys are always changing, and we're taking input. Or no, they're not always changing, but they're changing as we take input and get feedback and improve what we're doing. Um, but one of the things I'm working on right now is we're building um, <clears throat> these applications for custom reports, so that instructors can go in and they can look at um, how is my course doing compared to all the other courses that have ever given this inventory. And as once the database is big enough, we, you know, we could focus in on like how is my course doing compared to other courses with you know 300 to 500 students, or 30 to 50 students, or whatever, or at R1s or at HSIs whatever institutional characteristics. But that just takes a lot of data to be able to get that fine grain. And then also we wanna build in there is the opportunity for instructors to explore um, equity issues within the data they're having, right? So like, are we seeing that these courses are, are mitigating the effects of sexism or are they adding to the effects of sexism and racism and class oppression? Um, but keeping that as like something that instructors can explore and kind of choose how much they want to dig into it and with some scaffolding and structure. So that's just not like an overwhelming fire hose of information that doesn't mean anything.
1: Totally. That's the two poles. is no information, dusty scantrons or too much information. <laughs> that's the, the two things we don't want.
0: I have like five questions to unpack all that really cool stuff you said. So the first thing I wanted to know, so you're talking about um, these pre and post scores, and it sounds like you're talking about before the semester and after the semester, and that makes a lot of sense, but are you? is it more than that? Would you talk about um, before and after a specific activity in a class or a specific content, or, or how, how is that pre and post used?
2: Yeah, so generally it is start of class, end of class, but um, we're, we're actually... Jason and I have submitted a, a grant proposal to NSF to um, develop modular computer adaptive assessments, which mm-hmm. one could imagine, you know, assessing different things throughout the semester where you've got an adaptive assessment that like is finding different skill levels and kind of honing in on them. So that's a place we want to go. Right now, um, it's pre-post. There's a handful of assessments that might only be post um, mm-hmm. or only be pre, So, and that's an option. You can do that. Um, and you decide when you want to give them, but the generally, you know, the recommendation is kind of first week, last week sure, um, sure. of a semester. But
1: and can yeah. I add in um, one thing? I really like too is so there's you have different STEM disciplines on there, and there's kind of these uh, what is the word? I'm like content related ones, but there's also more. I'm saying feelings because I can't think of another word, but like there's ones around belonging, and there's different kinds of tools
3: on there. Classroom right? so,
0: climate, maybe, mm, is that yeah. the words?
3: That's
1: better than.
0: Yeah, like affect. <laughs>
3: yeah. <clears throat> I think of them as like affective instruments mm-hmm. affect, emotions, feelings. Yeah, so there's um, less. I mean, maybe a third of the instruments are on issues of affect, like students' attitudes, mm-hmm. self efficacy, mindset, um, things like that. And those sometimes are discipline specific, like it might be my like physics self efficacy, or sometimes they might be like academic self efficacy. Mm-hmm. So you could kind of apply them in any setting. And then about two thirds of the instruments are like concept inventories focused on like conceptual knowledge Mm -hmm, within mm -hmm. that discipline.
0: And I love the idea that you can compare across all these different types of classes and all these different universities and sort based on R1s or PUIs or whatever. That's really cool. Uh, So I think that's a really valuable thing that you're bringing with this, these quizzes. Um, How long does it generally take the students to do the quizzes or does it vary depending on what, I mean I'm sure it varies depending on which one you choose, but what's a normal time frame?
3: Um, I mean, I could actually answer that empirically if oh, I had thought about it ahead of time. But I think the, the time is it's probably like 20 to 40 minutes,
0: okay. depending
2: depending on the student, mm-hmm. right? Like, Get, those um, are the concept inventories longer time. the longer times. The Attitudinal ones, yeah. where it's like, those are like five minutes, you know? Oh, yeah. really? Uh, very, very short. Yeah. Okay.
3: Well, some of them are like 10 questions, agree, disagree with these mm-hmm. statements, right? And then you just read it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Cool.
2: As opposed to try and solve a conceptual science problem. Takes, you know, a lot more time. Like, oh, what about this answer? What about that answer?
1: Yeah. Um, that makes sense. Yeah, I we we've just gone through our um, tenure process, which we've documented at length <laughs> in the podcast. But you know, it does seem like, you know, this is a, that could be a useful tool also for talking about how great you are. Or the plans you have to change things that maybe you totally. know, or just reporting Definitely. on your class and showing self-reflection. It seems like an excellent tool for that.
3: It it at the very least feels like a way to, to stand out as, as different, right? Like it's a it's a way of showing an active process of reflection mm-hmm. on of one's teaching. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: As a pre tenure faculty member, I have certainly shown up with my you know results you know to mm-hmm. my department head or be like, hey, look at like how good things went this semester, or you know in talks and I'm pitching the LA program and be like, hey, you might want to think about LA's look at what happened once we had a laser in here, just to have um, that empirical evidence, especially for convincing scientists, you know, that like something is worthwhile. They're like, if I don't see the numbers, it might not mean anything to me. You're like, okay, well, here is something. i well, they also say, you know, a short comment, the numbers tell a story, but they're far from the full, any full sure, story. Sure, so of my, course. You know, collecting the qualitative data and, and, you know, and having good anecdotes is also really valuable, um, but
0: yeah. And I I have looked at those beautiful PDFs that you have as sample PDFs of what data you might get. And they are beautiful showing, you know, before the semester, after the semester, the grade distribution, it's very nice.
1: Well, one thing that I often wring my hands about on here is um, I guess it's depth versus breadth. And Mm -hmm. sometimes I feel a little stressed and maybe just concerned that like I'm going to get in trouble for not covering the same amount because I'm trying to do these practices. And this seems like a great way to say, look, but they work or, you know, having right. something beyond me thinking, everyone just seemed happier. So it seems worth it. Like <laughs> that doesn't feel as solid. So, yeah.
2: Yeah. You see, I mean, I know a lot of people feel pressure from their peers, you know, like, Hey, if I'm teaching the intro, whatever course I'm going to be passing right. my students on and say, hey, but you didn't cover these things. It's so like, well, okay, let's look at these scores, though. Mm-hmm. They're doing really well. You know, and it's kind of a shield to the criticism of, well, you just didn't cover as much, you know.
1: Totally, totally. My elusive chapter 12. I never get to chapter 12. Like,
2: <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. I also wanted to ask you guys, I saw on your website, you call them research-based assessments, RBAs, and I didn't quite understand what that meant. Would you clarify?
2: Yeah. Jason, do you want to? Yeah, um, so...
3: All of the assessments have at least some published peer reviewed mm. evidence of their validity. Okay. Uh, and what that means is that, like, the question that's being asked, like, there's evidence that, like, students interpret it the way we think they should oh, interpret excellent. it. And that the questions kind of cover a reasonable spectrum of difficulties. Okay. Um, right. So it's not like, uh, and as we would expect, like, as students get better, as they do better, the questions get easier, right, like mm-hmm. like more knowledgeable students are more likely to answer every question. <clears throat>
2: um, it's not true of all just, questions people write. You might assume that's true right. of all questions people write, but it's not.
3: <laughs> right, yeah, like um, you can imagine as you learn more about forces and stuff, sometimes wording can just get more confusing, mm-hmm. like there's oh, just yeah. ways of making things really confusing. Uh, and they, they're not all perfect instruments, right, but there's a lot of evidence, and a lot of people have investigated them, You know, so the questions are more robust than like what I would pull out of even a textbook. Right. Which is just something someone got written a dollar Mm -hmm. or paid a dollar to write or something. Mm -hmm. That (laughs) makes a
0: lot of sense. I mean, every time I write an exam, I think these are foolproof. Everyone will understand. And then it turns out, oh, there is a way to misinterpret that question.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yes. I think we've all had the experience of like. Yeah, I, I I'm looking at the test and I see exactly why you would think to answer it that way, and uh, I will go reflect on <laughs> what I'm going to do about that. <laughs> like,
0: yes, definitely been there.
2: To to give you an idea of the process that folks go through, you know, in the validation work, you know, kind of a, a good process would be you start with some open-ended questions that you give students, and so they're literally writing out answers, and you're like, okay, what are like the common answers people give. And maybe you turn those into multiple choice questions and you give it again where students do you know, think aloud. So while you're literally like listening to them take the test and then they just talk about what they're thinking. Say, oh, OK, they, they are interpreting this the way I want them to interpret oh, cool. this. And then you get to do all of your quantitative analysis where you're looking at, like factor analysis. Like, is this getting the things I think like are these items clustering the way I think they should be and getting that you know, the topics I think and you know you can look at you can go to experts and how do they do they also think they should cluster this way? And you know, you could be using classical test theory or item response theory, like does each item, like Jason said, get easier as a student gets like a higher overall score, are they also more likely to get this individual item right? So, like are the items working the way they're supposed to so, just kind of start with the qualitative steps, then the quantitative steps, and you know, then you've got a stronger validation argument in the end. So it's a lot of work that like most people will never put into making a test or an assessment, and that's Dude, why. this like, is
1: why my surveys are so bad. I'm like, why <laughs> can't I write surveys? It's like because I'm not doing any of those steps. That sounds like,
0: awesome. That's really cool to hear wh- how they're interpreting the question and then mm-hmm. ups, re- rephrase yeah. as needed. That's awesome.
1: Wow.
3: Well, I mean, I, you know, if that's what you did as an instructor, right? Like, you would ask like five questions. Like, that's <laughs> all you'd get to ask, right? Because like, <laughs> it would take so long. So if
1: I make up a random survey and I'm like, please give this survey about ice cream, you guys, it needs to be like more weighty than that, right? There needs to be yeah. some, okay.
2: Part of the hope is the things we host, you know, we feel good about hosting. These are kind of high mm-hmm. quality instruments and, you know, you know, and I, there's a range of the things we host. There's ones that I think are like, oh, they did a really good job with this. And the like, eh, the line we've drawn in the sand is there's got to be some published validation, you know, argument um, Then it's kind of on the peer reviewers. We're not trying to evaluate each individual instrument. But part of the hope, too, is, is saying, hey, you know, people have gone through all this time and effort. It takes a lot of time and effort. We want to help them disseminate their work mm-hmm. as well. Um, and so, actually one thing you can do if, if you're out there, if you're listening to this podcast and thinking about creating an instrument. um we can work with instrument developers. They can pay Mm -hmm. and they can, we can help them test their instrument um, and, and uh, iterate it and then disseminate it along the way. So that's another Mm -hmm. kind of service we want to like, there's another group of researchers that like we might be able to help them, you know.
3: And I think part of our, our goal along with that is that a a lot of the instruments that are developed, you know, like Katum and Sid had an article recently in his that most of the, Physics education research, and I think this applies broadly, is done at, you know, wealthy, primarily white, affluent institutions in math, well math prepared classes. So <clears throat> ideally, like if Lasso, you know, Lasso has a much broader base of users and it, it could be an easier pathway to building those, those, that validity evidence for an instrument across like a much larger population mm-hmm. of students. Because that's, Probably the biggest piece of validity evidence that every instrument is missing is like, are different populations of students actually interpreting all these questions the same? Does this instrument work the same for black women, for first-generation students, for white men, or are we just only measuring white men and just saying it's good enough, which seems to be the trend of what has largely been done?
2: And that's not to fault those intro developers, it's hard, right? If you're at an R1 primarily, you know, or PWI, and like, this is my class, and this is the the students I have to work with, you know, it's hard. So it's, you know, we want everyone to do better, but recognize the difficulties. That's part of it. we want to lower the barriers, if we can, to doing that sort of work.
1: So can I ask two practical questions? One is, if there is, like, an economics professor out there listening, and they have a published survey that they really want to do in their class, are you guys limited to STEM, or is it... No. no. Okay.
2: We started in STEM, and mm-hmm. we are mostly STEM, and there's some... We have some items that are general, like We have, like, a grit assessment up there, and, you know, stuff like that. But we, you know, looking down the road, we're like, was well, there any reason for us not to do any discipline? And no, mm-hmm. oh, there's not. You know, we have the you know our, our programmers made it relatively easy for us to add assessments It takes a little bit of work but not too bad and so more we just want to find good assessments and we the other thing I should say is we only add assessments that the assessment develop or at least one of the assessment developers has said yes please oh, of course, host yeah. we won't host without their you know permission but if somebody's got something and, and they'd like to see it on there we'd love to hear and and get it up there and hopefully help them disseminate their work and and have mm-hmm. them you know promote lasso and hopefully um, you know no reason not to.
1: And then the other thing is, because um, you mentioned someone can pay. So is it for faculty who want to give the survey, is that free? or? But then if you want to yeah. work with you to develop a tool, that's yeah, a different so story.
3: Pay and free are things like we struggle with, but it's free for all the students and all the faculty mm-hmm. who want to assess and think about their courses. And then to try and sustain the, the system, the platform, um, researchers pay out of their grant funding, mm. you know, and it, we put some caveats in. If people don't have grant funding, like we can work with them, right? There's literally the money is just to sustain the system, right? Mm-hmm.
2: Jason yeah. and I have never, have never nor will ever get a check out of Lasso. It is, you know, it's literally keep the servers running and pay a programmer when programming needs to get done. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So that would be and, more uh, like if I wanted to access a really detailed data set from everyone then that would be okay
2: and so we actually make we have a data set that's free to everybody as well (laughs) it's the first three years of data for each instrument that it was on like the first three years it was on lasso make that free so you can get in there and play around and do a study publish with it if you want but if you want more to really dig in then you chip in some money to help keep lasso running that's that's our sustainability model
3: that
1: sounds very reasonable
3: and the way everybody has done this So far has been like they write in those funds into their grant. Mm -hmm, So it mm -hmm. becomes a small piece of their NSF grant budget and then gets to go to LASSO to sustain it.
0: Totally. That makes sense. So what do you two hope LASSO will do to the education community?
3: Oh, that's a long list. (laughs) Um, I, I mean, one thing I just is to help people reflect on their teaching, right, and to just make more informed decisions about what's happening in the classroom, because, like, teaching is just so much work, it's just really easy to just go into rote, right, Very. I do what I did last year, and everyone expects me to do what I did last year, mm-hmm. and what I did last year is what the guy who had the course the year before gave me to do, and it's just, like, and it's hard to, to make changes or iterate and to know when you do make changes like was well, that good or bad or who knows what's going on here uh, and then i think the other thing is like also as a lens for like thinking about issues of equity and and like just creating a just stem education system
1: mm-hmm.
3: uh, which it has there's big limitations with what quantitative data can do there but it's a, it's a piece of the puzzle
0: totally
2: it's a piece of the puzzle that hasn't been explored much, or as much as as I think it could be. You know, because people have lacked big data to look at. You know, these groups that you know, black women make up you know around you know just a couple percentage points of the overall physics student population. So, like, if you want to say anything with any sort of confidence about that group, you need a lot of data, and so mm-hmm. it, this hasn't been easy for people to get. And so, there's kind of a lot of unexplored research questions that uh, I think have value, um, that hopefully this makes possible. Like Jason said, the biggest thing is like, if it can help faculty just think about their student learning, even if they get they like, do something entirely new, that's awesome. And maybe the instrument doesn't pick up on that signal. And they're like, Hey, well, I don't think this instrument's measuring what I care about. Like if they're going through that thought process, that's a win, you know, just right. anything that helped them, you know, draw their attention to student thinking and affect and identity you know then that's that's the best thing to happen and and hopefully you know this does give them useful signal to identify specific things that are working but just I think that's the biggest thing that that research-based assessments have done you know like the FCI it's not that any individual score on that has been so important but it's helped a lot of people begin to think about their teaching and the impacts it has on students or or think about it maybe in a different way or more deeply Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah that would be the biggest gain and you know again Jason and I have a lot of Thoughts around issues of, of inequities and, and how to begin addressing those or identifying them so they can be addressed.
1: Cool. So um I was gonna ask, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? And I have one prompt is I got to do that really cool um, STEM equity workshop with you guys, which was very empowering about undertaking these kind of reflection practices and you know, getting I mean, we've talked on here before about doing scholarship of teaching and learning research and especially when you have a heavy teaching load, it's a great way to do research. So is that a workshop you're gonna offer again, or is that something?
3: Yeah, so um, that's a great prompt. Uh, Over this last summer, we did a virtual workshop. Uh, We had around 37 participants across the STEM disciplines. And the goal there specifically is to support STEM faculty at Hispanic-serving institutions to engage in a scholarship of teaching and learning. Where they're like using robust research practices to look at what's going on in their classroom, and then using that to reflect on what's going on and maybe make changes and make improvements. Um, which might or might not have anything to do with though We're totally not limited to quantitative data. Um, a lot of the times, the best things that can help are just you know, student interviews or, mm-hmm. or small things like that. Um, but <clears throat> so that is like a we have a system of um, workshops that we hope to run. We hope to keep running that virtual summer workshop every summer for the next couple of years. We have NSF funding to do this. Um, and then we're also uh, running workshops at the International LA Conference um, that's every year in the fall. And then I just submitted some applications to, for workshops in at the AAPT. And we've discussed other places uh, where to to run workshops, that would be the most useful. Um, and then it's focused on Hispanic-serving institutions, but we've opened it up more broadly to try and build a big community so that as we target our advertising to faculty at Hispanic-serving institutions, they can kind of come into a community and a network that already exists, um, just making it easier to get started, right, so that the workshop the first one we run can have 37 people
2: instead of three. <laughs> a different
3: environment and a different experience.
2: We did um, run some at conferences. It was the wrong conference. And we had three. And I was like, okay, <laughs> we need to better identify our audience. You know, There's some uh,
1: good reflection right there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, one yeah. thing I really appreciated about your workshop was you actually, I'm using the term because I can't think of it, but it's like you set up play dates with people so they could like set up research. So now I am in a group of people researching a certain topic. So that's super exciting. So I appreciate um, you're setting people up for kind of continuing the work afterwards.
3: Yeah. And I think like um, along similar lines, we have some research where we're interviewing faculty about what they're doing and what they want and what they need. And uh, like some of the interviews are with folks at two-year colleges who teach like 11 courses Mm -hmm. a term. And it's like, you know, people just have a huge variety of commitments. And so broadly, I feel like our work is just trying to lower those, whatever we can, just make things smoother for people to, to think about their teaching and engage in the process. And ideally, Um, a goal of those workshops is to build this network of people doing scholarship at minority-serving institutions, at Hispanic-serving institutions, so that they can be sharing results of, like, what actually works for them in their classrooms with their students as evidence-based practice, and that, you know, I don't, everyone doesn't have to rely on R1 institutions for producing all of the information about what works with just their students, right? Then we have to take their materials and adapt it, chop it up, spend a bunch of time trying to make it work for our students in our setting.
2: Totally. Yeah. One thing I'll add is, you know, it's like, oh, you know, I missed the summer Are we busy next summer, fear not, we we have a a web page with a lot of um, resources and materials that we're building out. Hopefully by the time this goes live, our new website will be up. But it's stemequity.net, dot um, mm-hmm. and our group is the you know the NSF funded grant we created the STEM Equity you know initiative. Do we call it initiative? I don't remember. Um, I think
3: we we debate what we should
2: call it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but so we're creating materials and having them online, and in the future workshops, more of it will go through that website. Um, so uh, you know, definitely point point people there to learn more about what we're doing and and some of these you know, opportunities.
1: Again, I love your framing of like lowering barriers and just making people's lives easier because so much of this, like from a shaming perspective can be like, well, why aren't you doing all these things? And like you said, like people are busy and overworked and don't know how to start and all of these things and just all of these ways, like much like students, like trying to think about like, what do people need and what would help instead of like just be a better person is not necessarily helpful framing. So I love that approach.
3: Yeah, it's kind of like a, like if you're going to take a road trip or go camping, like do you really want a bunch of people in the car who you guilted into, <laughs> <down>, right? <laughs> Or do you want people who were like they just needed you to mow their lawn and then
0: they have the time to go, right?
3: Oh my god, right. I love this so much.
0: What an analogy. That's yeah, great. That's,
1: <laughs> <laughs> although I'm interested in this other car where everyone's just kind of held hostage and guilty. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> What's that story about? They're it?
0: like, "When I get back, I still have to mow my lawn." <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> yeah. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, you guys. It's been it's been a pleasure
1: having you.
3: Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was wonderful. Right. Yeah. Yeah, thanks so much. It was great coming and
1: talking thanks so much for joining us on the professor podcast with ruth and claire we're delighted to have you as a listener and we would love to hear from you and if you want to email us our address is contactprofessorpodcast at gmail.com we'd love to hear any of your suggestions for future shows or professor quotes that you might want to share with us or even just things that have come up for you when you were listening to previous episodes and if you've been enjoying the podcast we would love if you would spread the word so the best way to spread word is by telling people you know if you think they should listen to it, or you can leave us a review where, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks so much for joining
3: us, and we'll see you next time.